Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Liesl Pritzker-Simmons, co-founder of the IDP Foundation, and Karina Gardner, its chief executive officer. And today we're looking at the field of education, and we're going to be tackling it from various angles, looking at the learning outcomes, new financing, cross-sector collaboration, and a bit more. So without further ado, Liesl and Karina, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. So it's wonderful to have you on the show. Karina, I, I know you're you're here in London, so we're not overcoming any time differences. But Liesl, you're in Boston, so what is it? About five hours difference, I think. So yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Not too bad at all. So good to see both of you. Let's start by finding out a little bit about the IDP Foundation. What's it all about? Um, well, IDP Foundation uh, is a private foundation based in Chicago, um, but with offices in London and uh, in Accra. And we were formed, I guess, 15 years ago um, by me and my mother, Irene Pritzker. And really, the goal of the foundation is to address um, address global education and really how do we think about including all children in an education program globally. One of the things that, that we were really inspired by back in 2008 when we started the foundation was that although there had been a, a lot of effort to increase access to education through increasing government schools uh, in, in developing parts of the world, in fact, a lot of children were going to what we now call low-fee private schools. So schools that are not government-run, but actually usually run by a person um, who is from the local community who has decided to set up a school for a variety of different reasons. And so many kids go to these non-state schools, as they're also called, independent schools, um, but they're totally left out. At least in 2008, they were. They were left out of any UN agenda, of any bilateral agendas. Um, and so uh, it was, we, we sort of saw this gap and this, this uh, a kind of a systemic problem. We happened to start in Ghana, but this is not a Ghana issue. This is, is pretty worldwide. And so kind of really from our founding in 2008, we tried to think of ways to empower local actors to help these schools with financing, with training, with really a holistic set of services. Um, and then also, likewise, advocate for these schools on the global stage. They should not be left out of, you know, multilateral funding agreements. There are a lot of kids in very poor communities who go to these schools. These are not, these aren't rich kids is, is often kind of, I think, a, mix, a misconception about children that go to low-fee private schools. And so really that's been uh, the, the, the focus of the foundation is on including all children in um, large global education agendas and bringing light to this sector, this non-state school sector and advocating for for its existence and also inclusion. 
but also what has been really fun is uh, we've built this together. I mean, really, my mom is is the leader of this initiative, and it was her idea to kind of start this program. And so um, it's also been wonderful working alongside her, certainly in those early days, and then um, and then recently as well. So we work together as a family, but really, she's she's the one that's built it. I love it that you use the word fun, because I think in philanthropy, fun really in my eyes, at least, it should be part of the conversation. You know, it should be a very enjoyable activity to try to improve the world around us. And I love the fact that you're referencing that relationship within the family, because philanthropy can have a very unifying drive within family dynamics, at least I find. So it's great that you're referencing the enjoyment from philanthropy and the fact that it can unify uh, the family. Karina, how do you characterize the state of affairs today with regards to where you're operating, SDG for uh, education, what's going on? Um, well, I think one of the things that's interesting for me is that within the education sector, I think those who work at all in education, um, which can be a bit of a bubble, <laughs> they will know that we are in no way on track to meeting any of our SDG goals in 2030. Um, and the state of the education sector in general has been really static for a long time in terms of key indicators that we care about. So the key things we care about, obviously, is, I think, number one, learning outcomes. If we, um, we've done a really good job globally about getting kids enrolled in school, Sub-Saharan Africa, we have reached near universal enrollment with most countries um, uh, reaching nearly 100% of children, especially at the primary level in school. However, the um, literacy rates, if we want to just use that as one, one uh, measurement, um, among 10-year-olds in sub-Saharan Africa, only about 10% will actually be literate. And so the difference, the huge difference between 100% enrollment and 10% literacy to me is, I don't know what more I need to say about that being one of the most important things that we could all be working on and trying to address and it's really surprising to me when I go to um, different conferences and I'm working in different global settings, how people working in adjacent sectors like health or nutrition or economic development or any areas within development are often really shocked to hear that stat. And it is one that is surprisingly not known outside of the education bubble. And I think within the education bubble, it's not talked about a whole lot because that's been the case for a long time. COVID made it a little bit worse, but I think, you know, we were looking at stats um, in Sub-Saharan Africa prior to COVID, where maybe 15% of those children would be showing up literate at 10 years old, and now we're down to 10%. But even at 15%, this is a global crisis. We're already in a bad place and heading in the wrong direction. Um, and But I hate to ever end with a dire note. <laughs> I also think in the state of the sector today, there is so much opportunity for um, innovation. We know how to do lots of things to solve for this problem. And it really is a little bit more about coordinating around a few things, around financing, around uh, more flexible ways of how we can do accelerated learning, how we can support um, many different interventions to try and improve learning outcomes as opposed to, I feel like there's often a lot of talk about what a silver bullet of one pedagogy versus another. And I think 
we could benefit a lot from a bit more flexibility around doing a whole lot of things at the same time, because there's a lot of improvement that needs to happen. And ultimately, we we have space and room for all players who want to try and make this better to get involved. And, and I think we are spending a lot of time encouraging more people to come into the education sector, more financing to come in from different sources, more interventions that might look different. We're okay with a bit of experimentation. We've got a long way to go and we've got room to work with as many partners as possible. Excellent. Excellent. And in, in keeping with that thrust there of getting new people and innovation and so forth, uh, one of the words or phrases, you know, to me, it's that, but that um, looking at this sort of from a cross-sector perspective, right? Not just education, but no point in having a shiny brand new school if the child is malnourished, for instance, Definitely. right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think um, we, we've been working a lot with, um, we as a philanthropy are a member of Stronger Foundations for Nutrition. We also believe in a collective voice in general. So as a we, we belong to a few different membership organizations, and we also fund the Global Schools Forum, and we are an active member of the International Education Funders Group, and we actively participate as part of the constituency to the Global um, partnership for Education. So we're looking at a global scale at a lot of these different networks and understanding that we need to collectively be talking to each other. But then at the same time, really trying to think about where can we move that kind of conversation to a really practical deployment. And so one of the things we're looking at right now is things like just um, the difference that it might be to introduce a fortified whole grain porridge into schools in Ghana. And this is where we see the work that we're doing as really being sort of one little tip of the spear that can then that can then accelerate itself into the overall system. And so right now, um, we know through different partners like Rockefeller Foundation, there's a big global um, coalition for school meals. And in Ghana, they're really specifically looking at trying to completely disrupt the supply chain that actually supplies school meals um, into the whole national education system. But a great way for us to work because we work on the, we support those schools that are the non-state schools, which in Ghana represents about 30% of the total education system. But it's a great starting point where there's a bit more agility, there's more independence, there's um, a slightly different setup. School, um, public education schools generally only provide school meals to a small percentage of the population, whereas low fee private schools will be most likely providing school meals to all of the students at the same time. So our ability to um, have research where you look at how much is the difference between a more nutritious meal actually improving a child's ability to learn in that classroom and actually track that over time and looking at a meals intervention as a learning intervention, one in the same, is actually easier to do in a low-fee private school where all of the children are receiving meals as opposed to a public school where it's really hard to control for the children that are receiving meals and those that are not in the same classroom. And so looking at little things like that where we can be gathering evidence that then is used to input into the larger system and that hopefully that translates to a global good and is part of the advocacy for why the government would also be introducing fortified whole grain porridge to as part of the school meals in the public schools as well as the private schools. And so I think that's just one example of how we kind of look cross sector. Yeah, fascinating. And just to, just to also build on that, I think just to be super clear with IDP Foundation, although our primary work is with these non-state schools. We are not 
private school evangelists. We absolutely want to live in a world where there is high quality, free public education for all children that is equally inclusive and accessible for all children. That's the world that we want to live in. And we think governments are absolutely capable of delivering that if, if, if it all works in the right way. <laughs> um, but we are also pragmatists. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that um, that isn't the case right now. And so you've got non-state actors that are picking up um, that sort of that slack. And so what we're primarily interested in, as Karina said, is how do we see that sector actually as really beautifully complementary and additive to what governments can do. And so that's just just to be incredibly clear about that. Um, we are not trying to take resources away from government actors, actually quite the opposite. Um, and we just see, as Karina was saying, these these non-state schools can actually be kind of little mini innovation hubs as we're testing out things that can work and can scale. Um, and they can they can do so with a little bit more agility. And so that's that's sort of why we're entering um, the conversation about education that way. I love how you're thinking about the um, the creation of an evidence base and how you're looking at where is it easier to to do something that's statistically rigorous and understand what the dynamics are and possibly then showcase that to a policymaker who can then in turn uh, drive policy forward and, and and deploy that at a, at a broader uh, national level. Um, Liesl, you mentioned about bringing in resources to the conversation. I'm really keen to get your take both as a philanthropist and as someone who's an advocate for education. What about um, sort of innovative financing, new sources of financing, thinking about that uh, creatively and trying to bring in more resources, perhaps resources that would traditionally be absent from this conversation, but that now are finding new new channels to to get involved and, and, and transform lives. So, so really the way that this program and our work with low-fee private schools began was actually through microfinance. So actually in 2008, my mom and I were um, were on a on a trip with Opportunity International, which is a large microfinance network that operates globally. And um, we were in Ghana. And one of the conversations that one of the loan officers was having um, related to opportunities, they were just they were just beginning to um, think about lending to these schools, because what was happening is that these schools, right? So they're non-state schools, they're technically run as little businesses, right? And they have working capital needs, they need to pay their teachers, they need to buy school buses, they need to, you know, buy books and desks and build classrooms before there's any money in the door, right? And so they go to a bank to get financing. Um, and in this case, they go to microfinance banks often. Um, and microfinance banks were trying to figure out like how to deal with schools as a client. Like, do, where do we put them? What are their, what do they look like? Like what actually, um, what kind of loan products does the school 
require are is it the same regionally? Does a school in an agriculture, a rural agricultural area have the same cash flow as a school in a market? How do we actually lend to these schools? And so this was the conversation that actually where we first met these schools. Um, and so one of the first things that we did it was sort of listen to the microfinance partner that we ended up working with called Sanapiaba Trust in, in Ghana, um, now Sanapiaba Savings and Loan. Um, but in sort of hearing why was it tricky to lend to very poor or poorly rated um, low-fee private schools. Rich private schools, that was easier to lend to, less perceived risk. But a number of these schools were denied loans, and that was the initial issue that we were trying to solve, was actually how do we help unlock financing for these schools so they can do things like build classroom blocks, pay teachers on time, buy books before the school year starts, like those, all those kinds of things that um, working capital for a school really, really makes a difference around, um, let alone buying better grain for better porridge, like all of those sorts of things. And one of the things that we started to couple that with was um, uh, financial literacy training for school owners, um, because like here's a profile of maybe a, a typical owner or proprietor of a low fee private school. It might be somebody who was a teacher for 35 years um, and then decided to retire, move back to their village and then start a school. And the finances of running a school, it's actually quite complicated. As you can imagine, the cash flow of several hundred students and how you're going to take tuition and how you're going to pay your teachers might be overwhelming for, you know, a high school French teacher, you know? And so, um, so we found that tailored loan products with targeted financial literacy trainings made these schools um, credit worthy and unlocked capital. And so, but around the, to, to get back to your question around innovative financing, we started with a grant um, to explore how we might structure this. Um, and then we, we actually then lent capital to the MFI to sort of practice with and, and um, with very low interest, a very soft loan um, to see what this would do to the MFI if they did this to kind of de-risk it for them. Um, and that has graduated on to become part of their program, part of their regular program that they raise outside capital for. And so um, in this particular case, because there is a financing mechanism there, um, uh, and part of what we were trying to prove was that these schools are credit worthy, um, we, we, we kind of took that, that stepped approach of first grant, then sort of softer loan, getting a little bit more commercial, you know, kind of moving it up the ladder as we learn more about how the program works and the risk um, drops. Great. Are you finding over the last 15 years, the pendulum moving in the right, putting aside the pandemic, but are you finding, for instance, on the on the financing side, the financial literacy, um, the, the food fortification, all of these various uh, facets to, to the work you're doing, are you finding the pendulum is moving 
in the right direction and, and just putting it within the backdrop of we touched on the and the sustainable development goals a little bit earlier that's 2030 is just six and a half years away but what i would say in terms of pendulum swinging in the right direction i think building off that momentum around enrollment there is a cultural understanding that kids should be in school and then there's been increased interest from parents and in understanding is this school meeting my needs? Is it is it the, of the quality I need? Um, also, is it geographically where I need it to be? Is it um, close enough for my kids to walk there or to not have to go through a dangerous neighborhood or cross a dangerous street? I think these are, well, they seem like smaller things. These become really big choices um, for where kids end up actually attending school. And if the, if the big public school that's closest to you requires... Um, going across a really busy road that um, that doesn't have a crossing, a safe crossing. You don't want to see your children doing that twice a day. Um, you'll pay something to have um, your child in a school that's on the other side of the road closer to you and where you don't have to worry that they're going to get hit by a car every day when they cross the road. Um, it's surprising how many parents will report that that is actually the main driver for where which school that they're sending to. And it's one of a few big um, examples, but the the reasons that drive parents to choose to enroll in a low fee private school that might cost slightly more than the public school are sometimes you know very different reasons than what you might assume sitting in the U.S. or sitting in the U.K. But I think one of the things about the pendulum is this idea that um, that the population is outpacing what government can provide. Uh, when we look at graphs around how low and middle income countries are contributing to their education budgets, the line goes straight up in a positive direction where governments are year on year committing more and more to their education budgets. Again, that real cultural shift of education is a priority. We're prioritizing it in our budgets. Um, uh, parents are choosing to send their kids to school. It is very rare that it, there's anybody who feels differently. However, population is outpacing that investment. And so what we see is year on year, the number of organic, small, independent schools that pop up to serve the parents who are saying, I don't want to send my child across that busy road. I don't want to send my child to a classroom that has more than 50 students per teacher in it. I don't want to, I, I, I will come up with whatever little money I have to send them to some place that feels a little bit safer. Um, that is growing. And so I think what's interesting is we've got this positive growth on the back of everybody understanding the importance of school and more and more schools showing up to actually respond to that market demand. What we don't have is any better learning outcomes happening really in those local schools versus the big public schools. So even if you have a, a smaller local school that has only 30 kids per teacher versus the one that has uh, 70 kids per teacher, we're still really struggling to get to the learning outcomes we need to. Um, and so that's what we see sort of as a shared problem where we're part of this bigger system where we are collectively trying to fix this. Um, but yeah, I think with what, what does happen with the increase of independent schools is there's certain financing models that you can attract when there is a independent private local owner that you're supporting that you cannot attract if it's going directly into a government budget. So as we know, there is a limitation to both philanthropy and private capital that will directly fund a government program. 
And therefore, with every new private, locally owned, independent school that we can create a vehicle where people can put money in, especially it's not necessarily just grant money. It's also debt and investments into these schools. And we can prove that that's an investable model. We're able to bring in a lot of new financing into the sector that isn't there when we only have a government budget that we're offering to, to finance. So I think this is also a big opportunity for us. And I think it's one where IDP Foundation, who I've only joined, um, I've been there about three years now, was way ahead of their time in terms of spotting this opportunity. And, and But yet at the same time, we have the benefit of you know, Irene and Liesl as founders going and learning from the community, learning from the local microfinance banks and learning about how this model works and what would make it make it work and replicable. And so in Ghana, we've now managed to support in these 15 years, about a thousand schools. We've since um, expanded the model to Kenya, where we are also on track in the first three years to support another thousand schools. But we're also working closely with governments in those countries because we want to help make sure that these schools are registered with the government. Once they're registered with government, it means that they're also taxpayers. And that's really important because the amount of philanthropy and uh, overseas direct assistance that goes to education is really, really small compared to what the domestic spend from governments are. And in low and middle income countries, the only way we're going to get significantly more money coming into the sector is if they have a larger tax revenue that's going into, into the government to be able to spend more. And so we look at these schools as having um, two when, when they're regulated and they're incorporated in the appropriate way, they have two really important roles to play. One is they're teaching the future, the future workforce. But the other part is today they are employing and also paying taxes and part of growing an economy to make the overall economy stronger and hopefully build that future that Liesl responded to where actually governments are in the best situation to actually provide free, universal, high quality education for all. And we really see ourselves as helping to pave our way to that end outcome by doing things like making sure the informal becomes formal. That the we in Ghana we did some of the first mapping of where these independent schools existed at the request of Ghana Education Services, part of the part of the Ministry of Education, because they said we know you're going out there to find them, and we don't know anything about them, and we help literally geolocate and and give lists over to help just create some better evidence and understanding for the policymakers about how many exist and where are they and how many students are they serving. And one other thing as well is also just to clarify, we work with um, independent locally owned schools. So there have been in the space um, a number of uh, you know, venture-backed kind of chain school models um, of various size and breadth. And these are not, those are not the kinds of schools that we work with. The vast majority of low-fee private schools are, as I described, someone who is from that area, who has a plot of land and starts a school. And we, we like that. That's a person who knows their community very well, understands who they're serving, um, and is, has a mission, sort of a mission-based approach uh, to providing this. I promise you, none of, the, uh, none of the thousands of proprietors that we've worked with are in this for a profit motive. Um, we're lending to them, so I can verify that. It's a, it's a different sort of 
of local ownership that that we're we are targeting with these schools. And the other thing around around sort of demand, we're starting to see, in addition to microfinance organizations, um, actually specifically serving this group as a client base, we're starting to see the, them this this sector really emerge as a client sector for the bank. Um, but we're also seeing some more specialty finance companies start to pop up. So you've got, you know, companies like Varthana, um, Premier Credit, there's, there's, there's other ones as well that are specifically um, specialty finance companies that are targeting financing schools. Um, and so again, a little more recognition that, that, that A, these schools exist and that working capital can assist. Um, but as Karina said, now the next step is how do we make not not just low fee private schools, but it's learning outcomes in general um, improve. Um, and there have been some interesting um, experiments uh, around can you tie the financing to educational outcomes? Do you sort of relieve some of the debt um, or lower an interest rate? when certain kinds of educational targets are are set. And so this is now this is now the, the next step. So Varthana and Dell Foundation, funded by Del, by Michael and Susan Dell Foundation, did a little did a little test of this um, a few years ago. And now that test is being, you know, expanded um, to see if, if there's anything, any levers we can pull in that sense because we've got this financing um, part. Excellent. Now that sounds to me like impact investing, right? Where you're starting having a something that that incentivizes this performance, right? Well, and even better. I mean, I think the, the best bit of impact investing, which would be pay for success or an outcomes based financing model, where you know really you know no one's making any money unless the thing actually works. And so I think this is ripe for experiments with those types of financing models. Within the philanthropy world out there in Boston, um, are these the sort of conversations that seem to be, that you come across quite a bit in terms of how to think a little bit more creatively on the financing side to to support outcomes? So so also putting my other hat on at the moment as um, as co-founder of our family office, Blue Haven Initiative, which is a family office that's focused on impact investing. Um, I am seeing that foundations, um, as well as other sorts of capital, like family offices and endowments, are looking for more of these, um, uh, you know, outcomes-linked or outcomes-based financing opportunities. The issue is they're really hard to set up. They can often be expensive to set up. Um, and everybody's got to agree on what the metrics are. And, you know, it's like, okay, if, if we're going to set up a million dollar loan and it costs $200,000 to set the damn thing up, then, you know, how efficient are we being? And so it's not a silver bullet. But one thing that could be interesting is that, well, do we feel like a pilot case is enough to sort of trust that those results are happening as we go forward? Can we extrapolate from this pilot to a larger, a larger fund, things like that? And so I think you see the development community and the development economists informing a lot of this uh, where 
impact-oriented capital wants to go. And so um, we see some of it, but it's wonky and complicated. And, and so, you know, it's like you need a PhD in learning outcomes as well as in structured finance sometimes. So it's still, there's not a lot of folks that are super literate in both of those things at the same time. But um, I think as that gets demystified, yeah. But it's good to see this thinking happening because sometimes you can have education budgets going up, but yet the outcomes are going down. They're not, yeah. there isn't necessarily that, that correlation that you put more money in there and you're getting more for it. Um, and because of that, often we see a lot of fatigue around those who have been in the education sector for a long time. And I think that's one of the things I worry about a lot is for those who have been in a long time, you know, dedicated to um, financing education and still are seeing stagnant or slightly worse outcomes we are worried that people are moving away and giving up on something that we just can't afford to give up on. I mean, we just can't. I, I think I, I worked in global health for um, the first decade of my career, and I kind of always make an analogy of when we were, um, you know, distributing condoms or bed nets in, in an attempt to reduce malaria or HIV if you were still seeing HIV and malaria increase in those same communities that you're distributing those then you go back and you start thinking about, okay, wh what broke down in our distribu distribution supply chain? What wasn't working in our behavior change campaign? How are we going to improve on this? And you start iterating and potentially doubling down and spending more until you get it right, until you see those rates go in the opposite direction. But we don't seem to see that same level of passion and commitment in the education sector saying, okay, we're still only at 10% literacy. We need to learn from what we haven't been doing right and do this better. And we just need to keep working harder because this is absolutely imperative. There's no way that the continent of Africa can be successful with a huge population boom and only having 10% literacy over the next 50 years. This is critical. And so I think just that sort of cultural attitude being brought into the education sector is a really important part for us. Um, but I think, you know, with that, we are seeing more of the kinds of passionate private sector money that is, is that drives that wanting to come in and getting excited about it. Um, IDP Foundation has been playing a role as, you know, sort of advisor and, and an early actor in this space. And we were part of a consortium that received a challenge grant from, um, from a number of the Swiss funders from um, UBS Optimus and Credit Suisse and the Swiss government uh, managed through Convergence Blended Finance design windows. And it's with the idea that um, to design any sort of financing mechanism that can help us accelerate towards the SDG goals. But they made about nine different challenge grants and only ones in education. And so the idea that even the topic of is there a role for innovative financing and education to me is so um, it's so rare in such a small crowd of people who are talking about it. Luckily, all of those people are part of our consortium. And so we're able to bring together um, the Varthana that Liesl mentioned, you know, ourselves um, working with Opportunity International, working with um, Highs Invest and Global Schools Forum. And, and through that, we're now um, in the early stages of designing a fund that we believe will um, be able to mobilize some DFI funding 
and then follow the model that we've been doing where we can then actually provide concessionary financing to local microfinance partners with very clear, direct ideas about how do you deploy loans, but loans that are tied to learning outcomes. And so really trying to take that uh, model that was just referred to of saying, it's not just a loan for anything. Well, I, I think actually this is where, you know, you work within your markets. It's an independent um, owner. They can choose to spend the, the loan that they receive on repainting the school or, you know, expanding into a new classroom. But if there's a financial reward at the end for learning outcomes, then what they spend that loan on might change and how they prioritize spending that money might change. And also that's when we put the decision-making power into the school owner on what do you think is most likely to um, improve learning outcomes? We don't have an IDP foundation curriculum that we're trying to push. We don't have any global top-down pedagogy that we expect every teacher to adopt once we provide some financing. We want to understand what do you know best about your community? What do you think if you spent money on is most likely to have those learning outcomes? So we're really excited about the amount of um, uh, attention that we've got through this challenge um, grant. And we're at this design phase. We've had our early conversations with some potential um, investors. And we know that there's a pipeline of local financiers who want to support schools waiting to kind of deploy money this way. But figuring out how to assess those learning outcomes will be the, the biggest challenge of all. <laughs> sounds like you guys have both exciting times uh, ahead of you, but also, uh, uh, like you said, the, the work cut out. What uh, would you say, Liesl, to your peer philanthropists and Karina to your peer chief executives, the philanthropists in terms of their their funding priorities and attracting more to come into the space of education and Karina for those other chief executives who are perhaps figuring out their strategic focus and getting them again to get with the program as it were and focus more on education what would you guys say to that one thing i would say is that you know look when you're thinking about where to focus and 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 what sort of niche you're going to carve out for yourself and for your foundation. Education is one of those foundational things that touches everything. It touches future income potential, it, it, health outcomes, it touches gender roles, it touches climate change, it touches all of those different things. And right now I feel like um, in the philanthropy world, and I understand this, um, you know, climate change, the sexy thing, that's the thing that everybody's doing. I get it. <laughs> There's a, and it's time bound um, and uh, feels like something new that maybe we could tackle. Um, whereas education is this sort of perennial, oh my God, like, is anybody ever going to be able to fix it? And there's this fatigue as Karina, as Karina was saying, but I would say, you know, that's where we need the smartest minds and the most patient and resilient capital. And I think there will always be a necessary role for private philanthropy to play that kind of catalyzing role. Excellent. Yeah, I think um, if I was gonna um, have a wish for other CEOs working in this space, I, I, I think one, I get really excited with the opportunity to work together. I don't think we, I think we share plenty in philanthropy, but how often are we co-designing, co-funding, um, you know, actually truly working side by side together? I think it could happen a lot more. 
I think one of the biggest ones that is development wide, but actually even more acute in the education sector is don't let perfect get in the way of good. We have got a lot of work to do. And we, you know, I think any sort of improvement from the space where we are, almost one of the things that should make everybody feel a bit more free is any incremental improvement is worth our funding, is worth what we're doing. And so trying to constantly, you know, design for or test for or get evidence around the absolute perfect intervention is just not necessary right now. <laughs> um, and then ultimately, I think I, I'm hearing there's a lot of conversation and for very good reason about localization and shifting power dynamics and making sure that philanthropy is not accidentally just kind of pushing solutions thought of by rich people far away um, into communities that didn't ask for that solution. And I think one of the ways that we naturally end up keeping ourselves in check in that way is we are trying to invite private sector funding in. One of the things that happens is when private sector, whether it's impact investing with some sort of you know mission related or, or concessionary approach or just commercial, either way, they do look to see whether or not the market is asking for this. They don't fund anything that they don't believe the local customer or client wants. Um, we don't build schools. We find schools that were absolutely demanded to be created by their communities and then try and figure out how to get them what they need to become better. Um, and so I think, you know, we just kind of look at that and and we can do a lot of, um, I think, other great conversations around how to shift power and how to make sure that you're really driving, um, empowering local ownership. But I think for us, I, I find it really exciting that it's not just that we have a Ghanaian team. Um, our Ghanaian team in, in, in Accra, I can tell you, are still part of the 1% of amazing Ghanaians. But our model is actually supporting local entrepreneurs all the way down to the idea of who can actually make a business enhance their community with an average of $3,000 over 12 months. So that's what we're talking about, about local ownership. That's what we mean by localization. We are going very, very local and really understanding what they have decided they need and getting it to them. And I think we could, we could do that a lot more. I love the passion. Before we wrap up, I'd love to ask both of you for a key takeaway. What's the one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I guess that being supportive of private schools does not mean that you are against government schools and they actually can work very well together. Um, and we that has been our experience over the last 15 years working with local governments. Yeah, and I think my takeaway would be kind of trying to do the opposite of the, the fatigue. Um, there is so much opportunity to make such a big difference in education. And so I would really encourage people to um, notice and then also think about how to get involved in actually turning learning outcomes around because it's huge potential for, for everybody who wants to get involved. Great stuff. Great stuff. Liesl, Karina, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure meeting you, speaking with you, learning from you. And I hope to see you back on the show at some point down the line. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Liesl Pritzker-Simmons, co-founder of the IDP Foundation and Karina Gardner, Chief Executive Officer.
For information about this conversation and more than 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you, and I'll catch you on Monday. 